Here are the five most cringe presidents. Number five, JFK. JFK earns the title of fifth most cringe after he invaded Cuba, causing the Cuban Missile Crisis and napalming Vietnam. Number four, James Buchanan. James Buchanan caused the secession of the South and had zero pussy. Number three, William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison died after only 31 days into his term. Number one, FDR. FDR not only federally mandated redlining, he was also an avid fan of Mussolini and Hitler. Back, baby. Pollutants cause lung cancer and bladder cancer. And better than ever. It's here that they offloaded the toxic waste. Does anybody else do this? I like to dump my fries into the burger box. Like dumping toxic waste in poor countries. In 1991, the head of the World Bank named Lawrence Summers signed off on a memo that suggested dumping toxic waste in poor countries. The memo gave three reasons why dumping in LDCs, or least developed countries, would be economically beneficial. Number one, the loss of wages from deaths due to toxic pollution is less in countries with low wages, meaning dumping toxic waste would be cheapest in countries with the lowest wages. Number two, the memo specifically mentions Africa, saying that the continent is sparsely populated in many areas, especially the poorer areas. The memo goes on to say that many parts of Africa are underpolluted, since the air quality of LA or Mexico City is likely far worse than many parts of the continent. Number three, the increase in diseases associated with rising pollution, the memo uses prostate cancer as an example, are not a problem in countries where people don't live long enough to contract prostate cancer, since infant mortality is often so high and life expectancy is so low. Therefore, dumping should occur. The memo is quite embarrassing to the World Bank and Larry Summers, but not enough of an embarrassment to keep him from becoming the Treasury Secretary under the Obama administration. Is this Burger King's worst sandwich? Nazi scientist. Operation Paperclip. Alright guys, we're going to be trying the original chicken sandwich. That's really, really bad. They helped put the first American on the moon. Well, that was pretty bad. Absolutely terrible. Why do I do this to myself, you may ask? I don't know. Why did the U.S. government recruit Nazi scientists? Meet Walter Dornberger, darling of corporate America, U.S. Air Force recruit, and Nazi war criminal? Dornberger was brought to the United States after the war to design guided missiles for the Air Force before joining the private sector. There he earned comfortable executive positions at Bell Aircraft and became senior vice president at the massive Textron Corporation. Before his career in the States, though, he was a leader of the rocket program for the Nazis, overlooking the construction of an underground factory to make V-2 ballistic missiles. The project utilized slave labor from prisoners at the Dora Middlebau camp. Workers hacked a mile-long tunnel out of an abandoned salt mine. Their food and working conditions were so abysmal that the average lifespan of a worker was just a few months. In fact, over 20,000 of them died, mostly from starvation and disease. Dornberger died peacefully in 1980. He was 84 years old. Here are 10 ways. 
Europe underdeveloped Africa. Ending African trade relations. The Portuguese began this practice when they took control of the seas, severing centuries-old trade partnerships such as the one between the Ivory Coast and Gold Coast. African boats were even forbidden from traveling to other states to keep them from trading. Colonial banks would not lend to Africans. In fact, they were explicitly forbidden to do so in British East Africa, but this was practiced informally everywhere. Africans were paid less. Europeans employing Africans and whites paid Africans less. Far less. Before World War II, European civil servants in the Gold Coast earned 40 pounds per month. Africans received four. Africans paid more for shipping. During the colonial period, shipping one ton of flour from Britain to New York cost Americans seven and a half shillings. It cost Africans 35 shillings for the same ton of flour to West Africa, a roughly equivalent distance. Currency boards. To take one example, when British colonies earned money through exports, the money was held in Britain in pounds sterling. Then an equivalent amount of local currencies were issued by the colonial currency boards. The pounds in Britain were invested in Britain, not in Africa. Colonies controlled prices. Colonial governments and their companies would not only set the prices for shipping, they would also set the price that Africans would be paid for their goods. The result is low prices for exports and high prices for imports. This actually still occurs today. Between 2001 and 2010, Africa lost $407 billion due to corporate mispricing. Hospitals. Colonial governments were scandalously neglectful of public health in Africa. In Ibadan, one of Nigeria's largest cities, Hospitals were segregated. 11 hospital beds were reserved for the 50 Europeans in the city. There were 34 beds for half a million Africans. In the Portuguese colony of Malawi, not a single doctor was trained in 500 years of colonial rule. The life expectancy of Angola at its independence was less than 30 years old. Education. At the beginning of the newly independent period in Africa, UNESCO conducted a study to see what colonialism had accomplished. The results were as follows. Only 3% of children attend secondary school. Less than 2 of every 1,000 receive higher education, and Africa's illiteracy rate was 85%. Monocultures. The colonial governments assigned countries with a single cash crop to produce, such as cocoa from Gold Coast or cotton from Uganda. Other crops, including staple foods, were discouraged. This led to numerous famines. In the Gambia, rice farming was common before the colonial era, but due to its shift as an exporter of groundnuts, making up 90% of its earnings, they began importing rice to counter a famine there. Slavery. It's not hard to imagine the consequences of removing tens of millions of working-age people from a labor force. This, along with the deaths from wars fought to capture slaves, stagnated the population of the continent for 400 years, while continents elsewhere were doubling, tripling, and quadrupling. The increase in productivity and economic development from population growth seen in other places was not seen in Africa. A cheesy comfort food from El Salvador. Now, I know what you're thinking. El Salvador? Isn't that that place where the U.S. funded a military dictatorship that butchered 75,000 people? In February of 1980, Archbishop Oscar Romero, the highest Catholic church official in El Salvador, sent a letter to U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Dear Mr. President, the present government junta have resorted to repressive violence. I ask you, if you truly want to defend human rights, to forbid that military aid be given to the Salvadoran government. Carter responded by secretly sending a special emissary to the Pope to silence Romero. On March 24th, Romero would be assassinated. At Romero's funeral, attended by hundreds of thousands of mourners, the national police attacked the procession with explosives and opened fire on the crowd. Hundreds were injured. More than 40 mourners lost their lives. The national police and armed forces were U.S. military and CIA trained. Tens of thousands would be trained in the U.S., Panama, and El Salvador. Many would go on to fill the ranks of the self-named Death Squads. After the military seized control in 19 
1979, the government began a general program of annihilation of those on the left, liquidating over 10,000 people by the end of 1980. During the Reagan years, military aid increased precipitously to six billion dollars, swelling the number of security forces from 12,000 to 53,000. On December 11th, 1981, the military conducted the largest massacre in modern Latin American history at the village of El Mazote, where between 800 to 1,000 people perished. The soldiers didn't even spare any children. If we don't kill them now, they'll just grow up to be gorillas. Ever heard of them? Well, maybe you have, but I bet you've never heard of the first 9-11. After being elected president of Chile on September 4th, 1970, Salvador Allende was a dead man. U.S. President Richard Nixon and his national security advisor Henry Kissinger immediately began staging their coup. On September 11th, 1973, their wish was granted. Tanks fired while they rolled down the boulevards toward the presidential palace as fighter jets blew up government buildings. 24 rockets would be fired into the presidential palace. All of this while U.S. naval ships sat offshore and U.S. Air Force patrolled the skies, watching their plan unfold. Salvador Allende's lifeless body would be taken out of the presidential palace in a stretcher. The country was now in the hands of General Augusto Pinochet. And upon seizing control, he had over 1,000 people immediately liquidated and thrown into mass graves. Roughly 13,000 civilians were arrested, thrown into trucks, and imprisoned. Many would be taken to football stadiums in Santiago and put in locker rooms transformed into chambers. Pinochet would send his general Sergio Arellano Stark on a helicopter mission known as the Caravan of Death, where he would fly from prison to prison with his roaming death squad, executing up to 26 prisoners at a time. Thousands of these prisoners would become the disappeared, where people would simply vanish without a trace. With families holding on to hope that their loved ones were still alive, they would never be seen again. By the end of it, 80,000 people would be imprisoned, and more than 3,000 perished. Today I'm making the viral spam fries. Let's see how they taste. 1968. Soldiers of Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry, enter Sun Mai Village to carry out a search and destroy mission. Their orders? Kill everything in the village. For over four hours, members of Charlie Company and B Company systematically massacred over 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians. They faced no resistance at all. In ones and twos, or in small groups, men, women, the elderly, and babies were massacred in cold blood. The soldiers even took a break in the middle of the carnage to eat lunch, then returned to killing the villagers afterward. It's one of the most notorious crimes of the Vietnam War, but it may shock you even more to learn just how typical this incident was. Just take this interview with Larry Holmes of 2nd Squad, 1st Platoon. What about this operation? Were you given any special instructions? Destroy everything. Destroy it all. Village, livestock, and food stocks? That's what a search and destroy is, isn't it? Dr. Al J. Venema, who ran a Canadian hospital near my life, says he knew of the massacre immediately, but didn't even bother to report it. It was nothing new. There was a massacre at Santra in February of 1968, and another incident during the summer in the Moduck district. I had heard this type of story many times. Every unit of brigade size has its my life hidden someplace. people make up parts of Mexico, Belize, Guatemala. The year is 1954. The United States brings democracy to Guatemala.
by launching a CIA-sponsored invasion to overthrow the president, Jacobo Arbenz. What followed was decade after decade of bloodbaths. After the coup, the U.S. set up a military base directed by Green Berets and staffed with Guatemalan officers trained at the School of the Americas. The base would train tens of thousands of Guatemalan armed forces. By 1966, the U.S.-trained military and their death squads are in full effect, targeting not only guerrillas, but also peasants, students, labor leaders, and especially Maya civilians. Already by 1976, 20,000 would be terminated by the military, but it wasn't until 1978 that the extermination campaign would be accelerated even further. It was kicked off early that year with a rampage at the town of Pantsos, liquidating more than 100 civilians. Another coup would transfer power to General Efrain Rios Mont. In the 17 months of his reign, 400 Maya villages were wiped off the map completely. Amnesty International reported 60 different indigenous villages in which massacres of civilians took place in just a three-month period, with the total victims exceeding 2,500 people. Rigoberta Menchu Tum, an indigenous peace activist and Nobel laureate, described how the military took her 16-year-old brother and 20 other young men to the town square of Chahul and forced all the residents in her village to watch as they were thrown on the ground and drenched with gasoline. The captain laughed like a hyena and forced the inhabitants of Chahul to watch. Why should we be worried about the death squads? They're bumping off the commies, our enemies. From 1978 to 1983, the Guatemalan government bumped off more than 200,000 people. A third of those were taken away and disappeared, the vast majority of them indigenous Maya. What's up, guys? Today I'm breaking a world record for fastest time to eat a Big Mac. All right, guys, here we go. Three, two, one. Israel invades Lebanon and surrounds the capital of Beirut. A major siege begins on the city, with 400 tanks, 1,000 artillery guns, airstrikes, and navy ships pummeling the city, destroying 500 buildings, followed by intense saturation bombing. Israel shuts off the city's water and power supply for days. On September 14th, the Christian president of Lebanon and Israel's ally, Bashir Jemael, is a... Israeli Defense Minister Ariel Sharon instructs the IDF to allow the Lebanese Christian Phalangist Militia to, quote, clean out the refugee camps at Sabra and Shatila. We are going to mop up West Beirut. These camps mostly housed unarmed women, children, and elderly people. After the IDF surrounded the camps and disarmed the Lebanese militias, the Phalangists enter Sabra and Shatila. For 40 uninterrupted hours, the militants began a terrible slaughter using guns, knives, and axes. Israeli figures put the number of victims at 800, but the Palestinian Red Crescent estimated as many as 2,000 people perished. The attack continued from Thursday, September 16th to Sunday. The IDF learned of the atrocities as early as Thursday evening, but chose to do nothing and allowed it to continue. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon would eliminate 15 to 20,000 Lebanese civilians and Palestinian refugees. As I watched the destroyed towers in Lebanon, it occurred to me to punish the unjust the same way, to destroy towers in America. KFC. Let's see how it tastes. The U.S. Army begins Operation Speedy Express. Led by General Julian Ewell, the operation would be a land, air, and sea offensive in the densely populated Mekong Delta region, mobilizing helicopter gunships, B-52s, Navy vessels, thousands of ground troops, Navy SEALs, snipers, and F-4 Phantoms dropping napalm by the ton. Ewell became obsessed with elimination ratios, meaning the number of Vietnamese KIA compared to Americans. Body count was everything. It didn't take long for Ewell to be 
become known as the Butcher of the Delta. Before Yule took control of the 9th Infantry Division, they managed an elimination ratio of 8 to 1, which was slightly higher than the average in Vietnam. But that wasn't enough for Yule, not by a long shot. Under Yule, the elimination ratio would rise rapidly, doubling and tripling until it reached an astonishing 134 to 1. Speedy Express marked the introduction of night search missions, with helicopter gunships prowling the countryside in the dark of night. Anybody that was out there was fair game. According to whistleblower George Lewis, the number one deadliest policy was firing on anyone who ran. Run from the GIs, run from the gunships, they'd zap them. Over the course of Speedy Express, the 9th Infantry Division fired over 300,000 artillery rounds. More than 6,000 airstrikes were carried out, dropping 5,000 tons of bombs and nearly 2,000 tons of napalm. The countryside looked like the Verdun battlefields. By the end of it, the 9th Infantry Division reported nearly 11,000 enemy KIA, despite recovering only 748 weapons. According to the Pentagon's own estimate, as many as 7,000 of those were civilians. Economy of effort. When they used to say precise pain in the precise place at the precise time. Daniel Anthony Mitrioni was an officer from Richmond, Indiana, where he served as chief of police before joining the U.S. government's Office of Public Safety, a branch of the U.S. Agency for International Development. The now-defunct agency worked with police departments throughout the globe, providing them with weapons, ammunition, radios, patrol cars, tear gas, gas masks, batons, and other crowd-controlled devices. In 1969, Mitrioni would be assigned to Montevideo, Uruguay. The OPS would be tasked with creating a police force with 100,000 officers. Chief among their adversaries were the leftist Tupamaros. Originally a political organization, they would become an anti-government militia, staging bank robberies and kidnapping prominent figures to hold them before people's courts. OPS classrooms taught Uruguayan officers about assassination, as well as a class on how to manufacture bombs and incendiary devices. Mitrioni specialized in police intelligence and trained police officers not only in physical torture, but also psychological torment. Former police chief of Montevideo Alejandro Otero explained some of Mitrioni's methods in an interview. According to him, Mitrioni would play audio tapes of blood-curdling screams in rooms next to prisoners and tell them it was their family being tortured. The OPS and police began using a special wiring for electroshock torture that was thin enough that it could be slid through teeth and pressed against the gums to increase electrical charge. There was also electric shock to the genitals, electric needles under the fingernails, burning with cigarettes, and the slow compression of the testicles. Wires were then attached to them, and they were given electric shocks on their toes, fingers, ears, and tongue. I was uh, put on an electric chair, gave electric shocks. And electric shocks were applied to all parts of the body, including his mouth and genitals. Mitrioni had built a soundproof room in the cellar of his house to inflict his torture on kidnapped beggars. One day, he brought several policemen into his home to show them his techniques in person. The policemen watched as he began his demonstration. Multiple Uruguayan officers were present, including a double agent working for the Cuban government named Manuel Javier. As he puts it, things soon turned unpleasant. Mitrioni began with a description of the human anatomy and nervous system. Then, the four beggars, all women, sat helplessly as Mitrioni shocked various parts of their bodies, showing the officers the effects of different voltage settings. Manuel Javier later quoted Mitrioni as saying, A premature death means a failure of the technician. It's important to know in advance if we can permit ourselves the luxury of the subject's death. All four of the women died by electric shock. In July of 1970, the two Pomaros kidnapped Mitrioni and held him for a ransom, demanding the release of 150 political prisoners. The Uruguay 
Hawaiian government refused. On August 10th, six days after Mitrioni's 50th birthday, Tupamaros put two bullets into Mitrioni's skull and left him in the backseat of a car. The Nixon administration released a statement celebrating Mitrioni's devoted service to peaceful progress. Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis even held a benefit concert for Mitrioni in his hometown of Richmond. By the time the OPS was dissolved by Congress in 1974, the agency had provided training for one million policemen throughout the developing world. Following their dissolvement, the counterinsurgency role of the OPS would be replaced by the Drug Enforcement Administration. And under the guise of anti-drug operations, the OPS's security and intelligence apparatus would remain. Run radioactive breakfast cereal. This summer, from the creators of MKUltra and the Tuskegee Experiment, Biological Weapons Testing on U.S. Citizens. June 1966, U.S. Army officers secretly released trillions of Bacillus subtilis bacteria into the New York subway. Carrying light bulbs filled with the germs, the officers smashed them onto subway ventilation grills or just tossed them onto the train tracks, creating large aerosol clouds that were carried by the passing trains from 15th Street all the way to 58th. Several years earlier, in 1956, the Army and the CIA used trick suitcases and cars with dual mufflers to spread germs into the Holland and Lincoln tunnels in New York City. 1955, the CIA releases whooping cough bacteria into the Tampa Bay area of Florida, creating a massive spike in cases from 300 in 1954 to over 1,000 in 1955. Twelve subsequently died. From 1960 to 1971, the Pentagon-funded experiments at the University of Cincinnati where doctors blasted cancer patients with a cobalt-60 gamma ray without their knowledge, exposing their whole bodies to extreme levels of radiation. 1965, Dow Chemical paid Dr. Albert Kligman $10,000 to expose prisoners to dioxin, the main ingredient of Agent Orange, a toxic chemical weapon used in the Vietnam War. The U.S. Army and Johnson & Johnson also paid Kligman to conduct tests with poisonous chemicals and mind-altering substances. The experiments lasted well into the 1970s. In 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission paid University of Tennessee professor Lester Van Middlesworth to inject newborn babies with radioactive iodine. Van Middlesworth later admitted that he had lost track of the children, therefore the aftermath of the experiments are unknown. From 1946 to 1953, using money from the Atomic Energy Commission, Harvard and MIT conducted experiments at the Walter E. Fernald School in Waltham, Massachusetts, where they fed mentally disabled children radioactive breakfast cereal. They also administered the radioactive iron and calcium intravenously. The atrocities of the Contras are almost beyond comprehension. April 4th, 1985. I spoke with Ephraim today, a nurse in the hospital. He had a terrible day. An 18-year-old had been castrated and his genitals stuffed in his throat. His eyes had been burned with battery acid, most of his teeth were removed by a bayonet, and his tongue cut out. They left him that way to die. Today we're going to be reading witness testimony of Latin America's worst terrorist organization, the Contras. The Contras were a group of right-wing guerrillas funded by the CIA who wanted to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government of Nicaragua. They didn't fight conventional warfare against the Sandinistas, but resorted to rocket, bomb, and machine gun attacks on civilian targets to destabilize the country and sabotage the economy. According to the New York Times, classified briefings from senior CIA officials included accounts about groups of civilians, including women and children who were burned, dismembered, blinded, or beheaded. They had a particular interest in sabotaging the coffee harvest, terrorizing coffee plantations and massacring coffee pickers. 
They also destroyed clinics and schools and killed nurses and teachers. In his affidavit to the World Court, former Contra Edgar Chamorro said the CIA told him that the only way to defeat the Sandinistas was to kill, kidnap, rob, and torture. The CIA did not discourage such tactics. We're going to begin with the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs report on U.S. support for the Contras, which contains numerous witness testimonies of Contra attacks and war crimes. December 4th, 1984. A Contra task force ambushed a truck carrying volunteer coffee pickers from the state communications company. 21 civilians, including a mother and her five-year-old child, were killed. Four of the pickers piled into a Toyota Land Cruiser and the rest into a dump truck. A few miles outside of Talpaneca, a Contra task force was waiting. It let the pickup truck pass and then opened fire on the dump truck with a machine gun, rockets, grenades, and rifle fire. The majority of people were still in the truck, some alive, some dead, some merely wounded. Then the Contras climbed on and began to shoot the survivors and cut them up with their bayonets. A few nevertheless remained alive, at least for a while. Then the Contras took what they could from the truck, including backpacks, documents, and money. Next, they set the truck on fire with gasoline. From where Roger Briones lay, I could hear the cries and laments of those who were burning alive. April 1984. Doroteo Tinoco Valdivia, a survivor of an attack on a farming cooperative in Ninotega, testifies. They had already destroyed all that was the cooperative. A coffee drying machine, the two dormitories for the coffee cutters, the electricity generators, seven cows, the plant, the food warehouse. There was one boy about 15 years old. He was and suffered from epilepsy. We had left him in a bomb shelter. When we returned, we saw that they had cut his throat. Then they cut open his stomach and left his intestines hanging out on the ground like a string. They did the same to Juan Corrales, who had already died from a bullet in the fighting. They opened him up and took out his intestines and cut off his testicles. October 1982. Maria Bustillo told of how her husband, a lay pastor, and her five children were taken from her home near El Hicaro. When she found them the next day, they were left all cut up. Their ears were pulled off. Their throats were cut. Their noses and other parts were cut off. April 1984. Innocente Peralta, a lay pastor, goes out looking for seven people taken in an attack on a Hinotega cooperative. He describes the condition in which the bodies were found. We found Juan Perez assassinated in the mountains. They had tied his hands behind his back. They hung him on a wire fence. They opened up his throat and took out his tongue. Another bayonet had gone in through his stomach and come out his back. Finally, they cut off his testicles. It was horrible to see. December 1983. Orlando Wayland, a Mosquito teacher who was kidnapped by the Contras, testifies to tortures applied to him and eight others in Honduras. In the evening, they tied me up in the water from 7 p.m. until 1 a.m. The next day, at 7 a.m., they began to make me collect garbage in the creek in my underwear, with the cold. The creek was really icy. I was in the creek for four hours. Then they threw me on the anthill. Tied up, they put me chest down on the anthill. The red ants bit my body. I squirmed to try to get them off my body, but there were too many. I was on the anthill ten minutes each day. They would beat me from head to heels. They would give me an injection to calm me a little, then they would beat me again. October 1984. Maria Julia Ortiz was hiding under the bed when Contras broke into her house near El Hicaro and killed her husband. They grabbed my husband and they beat him and broke his neck with a rifle. They took him out of the room by one of the doors which was destroyed and they bashed in his head with a rifle and they took out his eye. Then they threw him on the floor and they tied his hands and they cut his throat with a bayonet. He screamed and fought and said he didn't do anything wrong 
but they wouldn't let him speak and put a green cloth in his mouth. Next, we'll read testimony from Paul Laverty, a human rights attorney who worked for a Nicaraguan NGO during the conflict. His job was to visit the scenes of atrocities and to corroborate witness testimony. These are actual notes from his field journal. In my first week in Nicaragua, the Contras assassinated seven children, all under the age of 11. In my last week in Esteli, a northern town, I counted 18 coffins lined up outside the church, all road and farm workers, three of whom had been decapitated. February 2nd, 1985. I chatted with Laura Sanchez, a daughter of one of the cooperative workers who explained how her uncle, aunt, and four cousins were massacred. Each had their eyes pulled out, ears cut off, and intestines smeared against the walls of their farm. Finally, we have witness testimony given to America Watch, which later became part of Human Rights Watch. Rosa had her breasts cut off. Then they cut into her chest and took out her heart. The men had their arms broken, their testicles cut off. They were killed by slitting their throats and pulling the tongue out through the slit. Who wants stuffed shells? A military dictatorship. I never really liked stuffed shells personally until I made them like this. In 1975, the U.S. and southern cone countries of South America began Operation Condor, a secret network of intelligence agencies using spies to imprison and disappear political dissidents. In 1976, a coup in Argentina transferred power to the military, who began targeting suspected subversives and created over 300 detention centers across the country. The military junta, led by officers trained at the U.S. School of the Americas, institutionalized disappearances, often pushing unlucky victims out of play over the Rio de la Plata in a process known as Vuelos de la Muerte, or death flights. Prisoners in the detention centers were kept in complete isolation, with hoods on their heads and chained to mattresses. There was also the so-called submarine treatment, where prisoners had their heads dunked in pits and shit. I had just one goal, to stay alive until the next day. But it wasn't just to survive, but to survive as me. The junta also imprisoned pregnant women. In fact, over 500 babies were born in the detention centers. They would then be stolen and given away to military families. We're going to hand over the children to proper Catholic families to raise us their own. The kids will never know. The parents would be disappeared, and the children were never told who their parents were. The military dictatorship lasted from 1976 to 1983, and in that time, over 30,000 people would be disappeared in one of the most brutal regimes Latin America has ever seen. They used to say precise pain in the precise place at the precise time. Why would the CIA allow drug planes to come into the United States loaded with folks to the U.S.? Money. On March 25th, 1977, Argentine journalist Rodolfo Walsh went to meet with the family of a colleague who had disappeared. The day before, on March 24th, he had written a searing expose of the Argentinian military dictatorship, titled Open Letter from a Writer to the Military Junta. 15,000 disappeared people, 10,000 prisoners, 4,000 casualties, and tens of thousands in exile. These are the raw numbers of this terror. Since ordinary jails were filled to the brim, you created virtual concentration camps in the main garrisons of the country, which judges, lawyers, journalists, and international observers are all forbidden to enter. On the morning of the 25th, Walsh and his wife Lilia dispersed copies of the letter to mailboxes across Buenos Aires before heading to his meeting. But upon arriving, rather than seeing the family he was in contact with, he was met by ten armed men. 
Bring that fucking bastard back alive. He's mine. Unwilling to die without a fight, he pulled his concealed pistol and fired, wounding one of the officers before being gunned down. He was later burned and disposed of in a river. His body has never been recovered. Walsh was one of over 30,000 people who were disappeared under the military dictatorship in Argentina. Under the rule of General Jorge Rafael Vileda, persons deemed to be subversives were kidnapped, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. It was a state-sanctioned extermination campaign. It wasn't just guerrillas or communists who were targeted for arrest, but even women wearing pants or men with long hair or beards. The regime also targeted economists, artists, psychologists, union members, Jews, gay people, nuns, and priests. In the first days that the regime came to power, the junta had their soldiers tie a man to the Obelisco de Buenos Aires, a large national monument in the middle of the city, and machine-gunned the man in plain view of the public. But the junta would not maintain this barbarity as a public spectacle and became more clandestine as a result of the international outcry at Pinochet's Chile. The junta institutionalized disappearances, where those unlucky enough to be taken by the secret police vanished without a trace. The disappearance had multiple advantages compared to the standard summary execution. They could terrorize the population from speaking out against the regime, and it also had plausible deniability. Therefore, it was out of the realm of the international press. When someone was condemned to be disappeared forever, the secret police would cordon off the block of the person's home or workplace, then smash the door down, drag the person out, stuff the person in a car, and drive away. Oftentimes, the victim would shout their name before disappearing in hope that their family would know what happened to them. The police would also board public buses and drag people out by their hair in plain view of the passengers. In the city of Santa Cruz, a couple was taken from the altar of their wedding in front of a church filled with people. Prisoners would be taken to one of over 300 detention camps in the country, where they were tortured. In the interrogation rooms, prisoners were laid down on a metal bed called a perilla, or barbecue, and shot with a picana, or a modified cattle prod. Prisoners were kept in total isolation. According to one survivor, they keep you in a blindfold and a hood with your hands and legs in chains, lying down on a foam mattress all day long. When the guards would bring food, it was the only time we were allowed to sit up. Otherwise, we had to lie down all the time. Tens of thousands were never seen from again. Oftentimes, they were pushed out of a plane over the Rio de la Plata or dumped in mass graves. Dozens of bodies would wash ashore on the banks of the river following large massacres. They would drug the, the prisoners at the Esma till they were in a kind of half-awake, half-asleep state, load them on the planes, and um, throw them into the Atlantic Ocean. Anyone attempting to escape into neighboring countries would be met by their respective intelligence agencies as part of the Operation Condor Intelligence Sharing Network, operated by the U.S. and Southern Cone countries of South America. These events, which have shaken the conscience of the civilized world, are not the ones that have brought the greatest suffering upon the Argentine people, nor are they the worst human rights violations that you have committed. The government's economic policy is the place to look for not only the explanation of your crimes, but also for an even greater atrocity that is leading millions of human beings into planned misery. In Rodolfo Walsh's final letter, he reports numerous figures to show the state of the economy and the people of Argentina under the junta. According to Walsh, in the first year of the junta, wages lost 40% of their value, food consumption decreased by 40%, and the inflation rate was 400%. More than half the population would be pushed below the poverty line over the course of the dictatorship. It takes only a few hours walking around Greater Buenos Aires to realize that these policies have turned it into a slum. The primary beneficiaries of the new economic order were, of course, the multinationals operating in Buenos Aires, chief among them Citibank and Ford Motor Company. 
This was, of course, no accident, as many key economic positions held by the junta, including the president of the central bank and secretary of finance, were students of the Chicago School of Economics, a school of thought based on the theories of University of Chicago professor of economics Milton Friedman. The junta immediately implemented policies very favorable to the multinationals, including privatizing major industries, freezing wages, and abolishing price controls. In the 1950s, Argentina had the largest middle class on the continent and enjoyed a standard of living comparable to those living in Western Europe. Following the neoliberal policies of the military government, poverty became a fact of life. But companies such as Mercedes-Benz and Ford enjoyed comfortable contracts with the military. Mercedes, after all, would make trucks for the regime, and Ford made the notorious Ford Falcon, which the junta used to kidnap thousands of people, and became a symbol of the dictatorship, a death mobile. In the first year after military rule, Ford published newspaper advertisements celebrating the new regime. Quote, New year of faith and hope for all Argentines of goodwill. Ford Motor of Argentina and its people commit themselves to the struggle to bring about the great destiny of the fatherland. Ford subsidiary in Buenos Aires maintained a factory outfitted with its own military security detail, with a hundred soldiers permanently stationed at the factory, along with military vehicles and helicopters patrolling the complex. It looked like we were at war with Ford, and it was all directed at us, the workers. Ford Buenos Aires even housed a detention facility on the grounds of the factory. Union delegate Pedro Troiani testified that on one morning in April 1976, more than a dozen armed men kidnapped him in the factory and took him to a soccer field on the grounds of the factory compound, where he was held for eight hours, being beaten and bound with wire. Others at the factory were held there and subjected to electroshock torture. Operation Condor was particularly bloody in Argentina, a legacy of the so-called dirty war there. As many as 150,000 people were sent to the torture camps, which includes that little camp on Ford Motor Company's factory grounds. In all, Operation Condor claimed the lives of as many as 60,000 people, a full half of those in Argentina alone. deserve all the hate? Did communism kill a hundred million people? Depends on who you ask. Yep, communism killed a hundred million people. Comrade, this is merely bourgeois propaganda. Is that a challenge? The figure 100 million comes from the Black Book of Communism, and a large chunk of those deaths are attributed to the Great Chinese Famine, which caused at least 25 million excess deaths. It's rightly considered a crime of communism. But what about the crimes of capitalism? India is a country with a strong private sector, especially with agriculture, which is completely privately controlled. Along with their banking and their massive multinational corporations, India is indeed a mixed capitalist economy. After independence, there was no large famine, certainly nothing like the Great Bengal, famine under British rule. But let's look at post-independence. Though there was not a large single famine, there was a persistence of regular hunger. The extra mortality in India from regular deprivation in normal times vastly outshadows the Chinese famine. That's according to Nobel laureate and leading famine expert Amartya Sen from his work Hunger and Public Action, which he wrote along with John Drez. According to them, we get an estimate of excess normal mortality in India of 3.9 million per year. This implies that every eight years or so, more people die in India than died in China in the gigantic famine of 1958-61. India seems to manage to fill its cupboard with more skeletons every eight years than China put there in its years of shame. By 1979, we would see 100 million dead in India alone. 
we can only imagine how many others perish the world over. But this video is not about communism versus capitalism. It's about the role of the government in stopping hunger. See, after China's Great Famine, they instituted many reforms that actually dramatically reduced the mortality rate. And what were these reforms? Well, first and foremost, government investment in healthcare. The Chinese government bankrolled clinics in rural areas along with medical cooperatives and so-called barefoot doctors or healthcare providers who worked in the countryside. Medical resources became more evenly distributed. China would come to have twice as many doctors and three times the nurses as India. Creamy caramelized onion pasta. First thing you're going to want to do is pour yourself a stiff one because today we're talking about the Vietnam War serial killer. Roy E. Bumgarner was a sergeant in the 1st Cavalry Division. Over the course of the war, Bumgarner racked up a personal body count of more than 1,500 people, a figure he boasted to his colleagues. But members of his platoon would go on to testify that Bumgarner wasn't just firing at enemy combatants, but civilians, oftentimes random farmers working in their fields. To cover up his tracks, he'd plant Chinese grenades and other weapons on them, and then list them as enemy KIA. On the morning of February 25, 1969, a six-man team led by Bumgarner entered a village in Bundun province. They detained a man and two boys tending to ducklings and marched them over to a jackfruit tree. Bumgarner and specialist James Rodarty opened fire, executing the three of them. They proceeded to stage the scene to look like they had died in combat and dropped a grenade. Spinal marrow and brains were splattered everywhere. For this incident, Bumgarner would actually be court-martialed and charged. But during the course of the trial, civil affairs officer Peter Barenbach was horrified. The prosecutor told me that Bumgarner was probably going to get off because of the MGR, the mere rule. The MGR was an unofficial legal standard applied to Americans in Vietnam that allowed war criminals to avoid prosecution or get off with lenient sentences. This would hold true for Bumgarner, as his sentence was a demotion followed by six months of a decrease in pay. He never spent a single day in jail and was even allowed to return to Vietnam where he served for years. The crimes he continued to commit sadly remain a mystery. See how they taste. 1968. Soldiers of Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry, enter Sung Mai Village to carry out a search and destroy mission. Their orders? Kill everything in the village. For over four hours, members of Charlie Company and B Company systematically massacred over 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians. They faced no resistance at all. In ones and twos, or in small groups, men, women, the elderly, and babies were massacred in cold blood. The soldiers even took a break in the middle of the carnage to eat lunch, then returned to killing the villagers afterward. It's one of the most notorious crimes of the Vietnam War, but it may shock you even more to learn just how typical this incident was. Just take this interview with Larry Holmes of 2nd Squad, 1st Platoon. What about this operation? Were you given any special instructions? Destroy everything. Destroy it all. Village, livestock, and food stocks? That's what a search and destroy is, isn't it? Dr. Aljay Venema, who ran a Canadian hospital near my life, says he knew of the massacre immediately, but didn't even bother to report it. It was nothing new. There was a massacre at Santra in February of 1968, and another incident during the summer in the Moduk district. I had heard this type of story many times. Every unit of brigade size has its mylai hidden someplace. Trap Supreme! Alright, let's see how it tastes. 1967, the CIA began the notorious Phoenix Program, a massive campaign of political assassination targeting the National Liberation Front, otherwise known as the Viet Cong. The Phoenix Program's outfit of spies and hitmen were tasked with finding and, quote, neutralizing Vietnamese civil officials. Those unlucky enough to be captured would be transferred to detention centers. Military intelligence officer Kate Barton Osborne described some of the 
interrogation methods he witnessed. The insertion of a six-inch dowel into the canal of one of my detainee's ears, and then tapping through the brain until dead. Others might be taken for a ride in a helicopter. The first wouldn't talk. Intelligence gives you a signal, thumb towards the door, and you push the guy out. Two Viet Cong prisoners were interrogated on an airplane flying toward Saigon. The first refused to answer questions and was thrown out of the airplane at 3,000 feet. The second immediately answered all the questions, but he too was thrown out. Perhaps the worst part of it all is how many of these unlucky victims weren't even Viet Cong at all. Here's an exchange between Representative Ogden Reed and Phoenix Program Director William Colby. Are you certain that we know a member of the VCI from a loyal member of the South Vietnamese citizenry? No, Mr. Congressman, I am not. By the time the program ended in 1972, Phoenix reported 26,369 killed, which is likely a massive undercount, since the South Vietnamese government put the number at well over 40,000. The true number will likely never be known. My last video. So today we're going to talk about the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba became the first prime minister of the newly independent Republic of Congo, ending 80 years of Belgian colonial rule, one of the most brutal colonial regimes in history. The Republic of the Congo has been proclaimed, and our beloved country's future is now in the hands of its own people. President Dwight D. Eisenhower's administration subsequently planned his extermination. His removal must be an urgent and prime objective. In 1960, the CIA sent Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, head of the CIA's MK Ultra program, to Congo with a vial containing a deadly virus to be put on Lumumba's toothbrush. The plan would be aborted since they couldn't find an asset to get close enough access to him. So Washington moved forward with plan B. After fomenting a coup to put the CIA-backed army chief Joseph Mobutu to power, the hunt for Lumumba began. The CIA station in Kinshasa coordinated with Mobutu's troops to put up roadblocks to choke up any escape routes for Lumumba. On January 17th, Mobutu caught up with Lumumba, who kidnapped him, then transferred him to the Belgian-backed rebels in Katanga province. Lumumba Lumumba faced a firing squad and was stuffed into a shallow grave. In 1977, CIA case officer John Stockwell disclosed that a colleague of his, an officer who had addressed my training class at the farm, opened up about driving about town after curfew with Patrice Lumumba's body in the trunk of his car, trying to decide what to do with it. Episode of Pistachio Cream Pasta. In today's episode of Food from Around the World, today we're traveling to Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is an experiment, and what they experiment in is brainwashing. When you arrive at Guantanamo Bay, you're put into extreme sensory deprivation. Fitted with blacked-out goggles, a hood over your head, and soundproof headphones, you can't see or hear anything around you. You're then placed in a cell alone, left in isolation for months at a time, blasted with loud music or tapes of babies crying and cats meowing. Strobe lights flash at you and attack dogs bark in front of your face. Sometimes they're even let go to savagely attack you. The effects of this prolonged psychological torment can create permanent brain damage. According to former detainee Asif Iqbal, an entire wing of the camp is reserved for prisoners in permanently delusional states. Those who have become seriously mentally affected seem to be kept in Delta Block. A declassified letter from the FBI to the Pentagon describes how prisoner Mohammed Al-Qahtani was, quote, subjected to intense isolation for over three months. Qahtani was evidencing behavior consistent with extreme psychological trauma, talking to non-existent people, reporting hearing voices, and crouching in a cell covered with a sheet for hours on end. Former U.S. Army Chaplain James E. worked at Guantanamo Bay and later described the prisoners kept on Delta Block. 
I'd stop to talk to them, and they would respond to me in a childlike voice, talking complete nonsense. Many of them would loudly sing childish songs, repeating the song over and over. Some would stand on top of their steel bed frames and act out childishly, reminding me of the King of the Mountain game I played with my brothers when we were young. Crypto makes the world go forward.
To put that into perspective, the entire Library of Congress could fit in just 15 terabytes. The NSA has since logged every phone call ever made in America since 2006. With these records, they're able to learn far more than from just listening to phone calls. Metadata can be very revealing. According to a study published in the British scientific journal Nature, just four data points about the time and location of a phone call can identify the caller 95% of the time. And by using trial adoration, intelligence agencies and law enforcement can now track an individual's location moment to moment. By using cell phone towers, authorities can track the altitude of a person down to the specific floor in a building. There's even software that exploits the cell phone data seeking to predict a person's most likely route. It is extreme big brother. Since 2010, the NSA has applied sophisticated software to create social network diagrams to unlock secrets about regular calls to psychiatrist offices or late night messages to extramarital partners to be exploited for blackmail and espionage. According to documents leaked by Edward Snowden in 2013, the NSA has been using online sexual activity and visits to pornographic websites as vulnerabilities to be exploited. Wherever you are, the NSA's databases store information about your political views, your medical history, your intimate relationships, and your activities online. This was the aftermath of a bombing that killed dozens of civilians, including women and children. But most people haven't heard of it. The reason? The bombing wasn't carried out by Hezbollah or the Muslim Brotherhood, but by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. March 8, 1985. It was a sunny afternoon in the Beirut suburb of Bir al-Abed. Over 200 worshippers leading Friday prayers at the Imam Rida Mosque have crowded the main street. All the while, an unsuspecting Datsun pickup truck parks outside of a row of busy shops, placing itself into the heart of the crowd. The pickup is carrying what looks to be vegetables, but underneath is a pile of 750 pounds of explosives. I saw fires. Doors and tires were flying in the air before I heard the sound. The explosion was massive. It brought down the facades of four surrounding buildings and damaged 20 more up to 200 yards away. Dozens of cars were also destroyed. The human toll was immense. Paramedics packed vans with dozens of bodies. Over 250 people would be maimed and wounded. 80 would be killed. When I woke up, I found myself on fire. My hair was in flames. My clothes were ablaze. Batul Haider and Asiya Kalakish were among the hundreds of women and girls walking home from the mosque when the bomb went off. Both would lose both of their legs in the blast. Young children and babies weren't spared either. A seven-month-old burned in his cot before his mother could reach him. But missing among the piles of dead and wounded was one man, Mohammed Hussein Fadlala, the target of the attack. Fadlala was accused of being a leader of Hezbollah and of being responsible for multiple terrorist attacks on Americans, including the 1983 truck bombings of a barracks housing French and American troops, killing over 300. Fadlala's ties to Hezbollah have since been contested, as was his connection to the terrorist bombings. Acting on their intelligence, though, the CIA moved forward with a plan to eliminate him. Following the bombing, the Washington Post ran a story titled CIA Linked to Beirut Bomb, saying that the attack was carried out by members of a counter-terrorist unit trained and supported by the Central Intelligence Agency, saying President Reagan approved a covert counter-terrorist operation the year before. 
The Post reported that the group contained Lebanese intelligence and acted without CIA authorization. The CIA vehemently denied the story through a spokesperson. Now this is where things get a little interesting. One of the authors of the article, Bob Woodward, would begin his own investigation of the event, culminating in a book titled Veil, The Secret Wars of the CIA, published in 1987. His research brought him in contact with CIA Director William Casey, who had resigned from his post following a cancer diagnosis. He had two tumors in his brain, and Casey was on his deathbed. According to Woodward, Casey came clean with him. He said that in 1985, he sought to carry out an assassination plot against Fadlala, but that his deputy director, John N. McMahon, opposed it, citing a recent executive order signed by Reagan banning assassination. So Casey personally arranged for Fadlala's assassination through King Fahd of Saudi Arabia, with help from the Saudi ambassador to the United States, Prince Bandar bin Sultan. The Saudis apparently put up $15 million to finance three covert operations, including the bombing. When the assassination attempt failed, the Saudis, with Casey's blessing, bribed Fadlala with $2 million in food and other goods, as well as university scholarships for his followers, to stop his bombings. We have never quite gotten over the 85 attempt on Fadlala. It hit our reputation. From the movie Ratatouille, or Confit Bialdi to be specific. And now that I've got your attention, here's why America is losing to China. Like the British Empire before it, the U.S. has maintained its rule of the world with military troops and battleships surrounding what Halford McKinder called the World Island, or Asia, Africa, and Europe. Control of this area means control of the world. In 2010, China began to challenge the U.S. control over the South China Sea and built seven artificial islands to build military bases and constructed a nuclear submarine factory on Hainan Island. America has seen souring relations with their most important ally in the region, the Philippines. When Rodrigo Duterte visited China in 2016, he announced my separation from the United States, both in military, but economics also. In 2012, the OECD tested 510,000 15-year-olds in 34 countries. China was first in math, science, and reading. In Massachusetts, a, quote, strong-performing U.S. state, they placed 17th in reading, 20th in science, and 27th in math. The National Intelligence Council cited poor investment in schools as a reason. Funding for scientific research has also suffered, falling from 2% of GDP in the 19th to 0.78% in 2014. As a result, China's core scientist population is about two decades younger than America's, and there may not be enough American scientists to replace them when they all retire. China has proved to be a worthy adversary in the realm of supercomputers, artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, and anti-satellite technology. For this reason, China is expected to have a military advantage over the U.S. by 2030. Also at this time, the U.S. dollar is expected to fall as the world's currency, similarly to the decline of the pound sterling, contributing to the British Empire's end following World War II. And then there's the looming threat of climate change, which has various geopolitical ramifications, such as sea level rise forcing the American Pacific Defense Line to recede all the way to Hawaii. With China holding a large share of the world's population and resources through its integrated energy reserves, railways, and roads in the Eurasian landmass, China could very well be catapulted to the top, partly as a result of extreme weather. No, the Iraq War wasn't about oil. Just listen to John Abazid, the head of the U.S. Central Command who oversaw the entire Middle East during the war. Of course it's about oil. We can't really deny that. Well, f*** him. What does he know? How about Chuck Hagel? Now, this guy was the Secretary of Defense during the Obama administration. People say we're not fighting for oil. Of course we are. Well, what the f*** is a defense secretary anyway? Here we go. This is Alan Greenspan. He was the head of the Federal Reserve. Need I say more? I mean, come on. 
I am saddened that it is politically inconvenient to acknowledge what everyone knows the Iraq war is largely about oil. Okay, you know what? This is, this is bullshit, man. Okay, I have the proof right here. The State Department, right, had a Future of Iraq project, and before the war, they said Iraq should be open to international oil companies as quickly as possible after the war. I rest my case. What? No, that goes, that goes against your point. How do you figure that? Dummy, they're saying that they're going to war to open up Iraq to oil companies. Okay, you know what, you're starting to really piss me off. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the longest-serving Prime Minister of Japan, has been assassinated. The perpetrator reportedly used an improvised firearm made with wood, pipes, and a battery-powered firing mechanism. Improvised firearms have appeared throughout history, from the Mau Mau in Kenya, who used rifles made out of water pipe, door bolts, and springs to fight the British. Guerrilla fighters fighting the Japanese in the Philippines made extensive use of the improvised slam-fire shotgun, usually consisting of a couple water pipes and a primer, slammed together to activate the round. With the advent of the 3D printer, DIY weapons have the capacity to become all the more common. In 2019, a far-right German extremist killed two people on the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. The shooter was armed with several homemade firearms, including a slam-fire shotgun loaded with shells filled with homemade gunpowder. He also managed to create a submachine gun using blueprints from a book on how to make DIY firearms. He also had a more compact version with the lower receiver and magazines made completely with a 3D printer. The killing of Abe seems to bring new implications for the improvised firearm, few would doubt that scarcity brings out the utmost creativity. Most I'll bet you didn't know that the single most important organization involved in the illegal smuggling of Nazis was the Catholic Church. The Vatican and its prominent organizations directly intervened on behalf of thousands of Nazis, Nazi collaborators, war criminals, and fascists to escape Europe through so-called rat lines developed after the war. It's a little-known fact of history, but one with a damning record. In probably the most dramatic example, in 1946, Pope Pius VII himself intervened on behalf of the Ukrainian 14th Waffen-SS Division, an outfit of 11,000 men. Granted, it's likely that many of these men had no control over becoming SS soldiers and were caught in a compromising position as a result of war. Others in the unit, however, were members of police and militia battalions that committed massive atrocities, including pogroms against Jews in Ukraine and numerous massacres of Poles in the country. The record of the Holocaust in Ukraine is well known, as it was a massive graveyard numbering in the many hundreds of thousands. The SS prepare a ravine known as Babi Yar, near Kiev. 33,771 Jews will be executed in two days. A small number of the SS unit were prison guards at the Treblinka, Belsen, and Sobibor death camps. The SS unit was interned at an Allied prison camp north of Rome in 1945. The men were almost certainly destined for the firing squad in gulags after repatriation to the Soviet Union, something the Soviets were very eager to do. 
But the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church had different plans, lobbying the Pope through Archbishop Ivan Bushko, who described the SS officers as good Catholics and fervent anti-communists. Pope Pius delivered, and the Ukrainian officers were reclassified from POWs to confinees, which placed them out of the reach of Soviet repatriation. The church would work with the British government to grant them free settler immigration status, giving them a choice between resettling in Canada or the United States. Many of them would become agents for political warfare projects underwritten by the CIA, who made great use of Nazi war criminals for espionage after the war. The uncomfortable truth, especially in Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe and Vichy France, was that these governments were ruled by Catholic political parties. Despite the ideological war waged on Catholicism by the Nazis, the Church found themselves aligned with fascism and Nazism. Slovakia, Croatia, and Hungary were particularly ugly examples. It's known now that for decades preceding the Holocaust, the Church openly aligned with European fascism against the threat of so-called atheistic communism, of which Jews were considered a primary suspect. Anti-Semitism among the Catholic Church has been ubiquitous in Europe for centuries, as the Catholic intelligentsia provided the justifications for the persecution of Jews, as well as carrying out policies in Catholic countries that culminated in the preparatory steps for the Holocaust. These included wearing of the Star of David, liquidating of Jewish businesses, and the exclusion of Jews from public office and universities. It's also widely known that the Catholic Church is a principal collector of records, with churches carrying ancestral data going back hundreds of years. Of great value to the officers and administrators of Nazi Germany to catalog local populations into registries by ethnic group, information that was handed over happily. Here's a map showing Saudi airstrikes in Yemen using U.S. bombs. Mass shootings, bombings of civilians in Ukraine. These events get plenty of news coverage, but a long string of mass killings going on for years has been absent from most major news. Here's just five massacres in Yemen that you've probably never heard about. October 2016, the Saudi-led coalition bombs a funeral held in the capital city of Sana'a, hitting the crowd with several airstrikes. 140 people are killed. August 2019, a Saudi airstrike blasts a prison in Damar province, with the Red Cross reporting more than 100 deaths. October 2015, an atrocity on Ukban Island has been very deeply buried and has had zero coverage from any major news. It is believed that over 115 fishermen were killed by helicopter gunships. Pictures that are truly gut-wrenching and unable to be shown show mutilated bodies washed up on the shores of the island. September 2015, a wedding in Wajad Tais province was the target of an airstrike by coalition forces. Medics put the death toll at 135. March 2016, two coalition airstrikes incinerate a market in the town of Mastaba in Haja province. 119 civilians are killed. In November of last year, the Biden administration approved a $650 million sale in arms to Saudi Arabia, enriching contractors who have made billions off of these atrocities. What's up, guys? Today we're making cola-braised short ribs from The Bear. You know, that new FX show based in Chicago. Now let's make these short ribs while I tell you all about torture in the Chicago Police Department. From 1972 to 1991, decorated Vietnam War veteran John Burge was assigned to the Area 2 headquarters of the Chicago Police. In that time, officers under his direction would torture at least 118 black men, women, and children. But the true number remains a mystery. 
This group of officers would call themselves the Midnight Crew, and their subjects underwent intense physical and psychological torture to induce false confessions. These included beatings, having flesh pressed against a hot radiator, burning with cigarettes, having a gun put into the mouth, and other mock executions, being stuck with cattle prods, suffocation with plastic bags, sexual humiliation and assault, and electroshock torture to the genitals, gums, earlobes, and elsewhere. The Midnight Crew reportedly referred to the shock devices as boxes. Torture eventually got Burge fired, and many of his victims would later have their convictions overturned, but many spent decades in prison and on death row. George Anderson claims police beat him into a false confession that led to a murder conviction in 1991. He still remains in prison to this day. John Burge would only face four years in prison for perjury, as the statute of limitations was up for his abuse allegations. He continued to receive a pension of more than $4,000 a month until his death in 2018. from genocide and civil war. The Tutsis took control of the country after, replacing the Hutu government. In August of 1994, the New York Times ran a story about the UN blocking Hutu refugees from returning to Rwanda due to mass killings. It was never officially released due to orders from the top not to discuss it. In September, the UN reported that Tutsi soldiers and civilians were killing 10,000 or more Hutu civilians per month, with Tutsis accounting for 95% of the killing. The purpose of the killing was a campaign of ethnic cleansing. This report wouldn't see the light of day for years, but why? Many don't know that at the start of the Civil War, Paul Kagame was receiving training at Fort Leavenworth in the United States, a school that teaches large-scale invasions and military tactics, something useful to him when his Tutsi army invaded Rwanda. After the genocide, he would invade another country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where further mass killings of Hutus would take place in refugee camps. Another 200,000 are estimated to have been slaughtered. Kagame, a strong U.S. ally, received help there as well, with satellite maps of positions and mineral mines of Congo provided by U.S. contractor Bechtel. This invasion culminated in the Second Congo War, killing over 5 million people. So-called merchant. This is the insane true story of the so-called merchant of death, who may be released in exchange for Brittany Griner. Hunting trips with Congolese warlords, booze-fueled parties, and jungle airstrips across the globe. This was the lifestyle of the world's largest illicit arms dealer, who had homes in the UAE, Belgium, South Africa, and drove a Porsche, a Benz, and a Range Rover. His life even inspired a Hollywood movie starring Nicolas Cage. Boot began his career after the fall of the Soviet Union, making use of the surplus of planes sitting around in the former Soviet states. He would eventually amass an armada of 60 aircraft with 300 men working under him. For Boot, it all started with flowers. Buying gladolias in South Africa for $2 a piece and selling them in Dubai for $100. He would move 20 tons per flight. It's better than printing money. Boot built numerous transportation firms in four continents, contracting out to armed groups and governments, including the United States, who contracted two of his companies. Boot is widely criticized for arming dictators such as Joseph Mobutu and Charles Taylor. He would provide weapons to fighters in Sierra Leone, Congo Kinshasa, Tanzania, Burkina Faso, Uganda, Sudan, and Angola. He was integral to the Taliban's aerial fleet, providing planes for their air force. Boot was arrested in Bangkok in 2008, following a sting organized by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. He was convicted of conspiracy to kill Americans by agreeing to arm the FARC rebels of Colombia. Could he be a free man soon? 
What's up, guys? Today we're making homemade orchette, one of my favorite pastas. This way, you can make your very own pasta at home. Want to know how? The U.S. government created ISIS. The U.S. government created ISIS. The U.S. government created ISIS. After the invasion of Iraq, the leader of the American occupation named L. Paul Bremer fired the entire Iraqi army. Nearly half a million soldiers were told simply to go home. But the soldiers took their weapons with them. These officers would later fill the ranks of the Islamic State in droves, as it's estimated that more than 25 of the top 40 leaders were ex-Iraqi military, including, of course, the late leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Baghdadi was also held at a U.S. prison called Camp Bukha, but what the Americans didn't realize is they created a terrorist training camp. Nine members of Baghdadi's top command were also imprisoned at Bukha. It was the perfect environment. We all agreed to get together when we got out. The way to reconnect was easy. We wrote each other's details on the elastic of our boxer shorts. It's estimated that 17 of the top 25 leaders of ISIS had spent time in U.S. military prisons. It was a perfect storm. The invasion, the military being dissolved, the Sunni-led insurgency, their imprisonment, and their subsequent release, all part of a sequence that created quite the blowback for the U.S. Care about your feelings. In today's episode, how neoliberalism destroyed Africa's economies. But Africa is poor because of low IQ. Despite what you've heard from these big brain shrigma males, the idea that the perceived intelligence of Africans is what's held Africa back just doesn't hold up to the facts. You see, in the 1960s and 70s, per capita income in Africa grew by about 1-2% to each year, about the same as the rich countries during the Industrial Revolution. It's what's known as the Industrial Revolution of the Third World. But what happened? Well, the 1980s happened, after which living standards actually began to fall in Africa. It began with the advent of the Structural Adjustment Program, a joint venture of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. After a debt crisis that hit the developing world the hardest, the IMF and World Bank utilized their newfound leverage by instituting sweeping reforms in poor countries. These came in the form of loans, with strings attached. For the loan to be secured, the poor country must liberalize their economy. What did this look like? Well, now the IMF and World Bank will decide your country's laws and decision-making, creeping into virtually all facets of government, including government budgets, industrial regulation, agricultural pricing, labor market regulation, democracy, government decentralization, central bank independence, corporate governance. In other words, the IMF and World Bank run your country now. They would institute neoliberal policies, beginning with privatization. Government-owned companies were transferred over to private hands, where mass layoffs and wage cuts would follow. Then came deregulation. Here's a particularly ugly example. In 1995, the World Bank required Mozambique to liberalize its cashew industry, eliminating its export taxes, after which 10,000 people, mostly women, lost their jobs, 90% of which remained unemployed for years afterward. And lastly, we have cuts to social spending. Massive budget cuts are made to health care, education, food subsidies, government salaries, and infrastructure. The only real benefit was to Western companies, allowing them free reign in countries who've just had all of their protective regulations disappear. This is because the World Bank and IMF's decisions are made according to the share capital that a country has, giving the wealthiest countries 60% of the vote and effective veto power. The policies that are put in place are quite literally designed to benefit not the people of X country, but people far away collecting returns. And it didn't go away. The whole system is still in place. The Structural Adjustment Program, after much criticism, was renamed the Poverty Reduction and Growth Facility. But all the same rules apply. It's time to talk about war crimes. 2004. 
American forces enter Fallujah. Their first target, the hospital. Troops shut down the Fallujah General Hospital to stop employees from reporting civilian casualties. No war wounded are allowed to be seen. Airstrikes would level another hospital and a clinic, leaving one small military clinic for the entire city. Things would only get worse from there. U.S. forces would also shut off all the water and electricity to Fallujah. The apparent goal was collective punishment against an entire city. 200,000 are forced to flee amid a massive and relentless bombing campaign. One year after the invasion, Fallujah accounted for two-thirds of violent deaths in all of Iraq. Weapons used on civilians in Fallujah include radioactive depleted uranium rounds and white phosphorus, an incendiary element that embeds into skin, burning for up to 24 hours. There were also cluster bombs, including the BLU-97A. Each bomb canister containing 202 small bomblets dispersed over an area the size of two football fields. At least 5% of the bomblets don't explode, turning them into landmines. Despite the carnage, Americans would not allow the Red Cross to send convoys to help casualties. Even if Fallujah has to go the way of Carthage, reduced to shards, the price will be worth it. Brainwashed about Israel and Palestine. The Western media and the Israeli government will show you Palestinian opinion polls to convince you that Palestinians deserve to be killed. 89% support terror attacks on our ally Israel. 78% had positive or mixed feelings about bin Laden. As usual, Ben outright lies here. Almost half of Palestinians polled believe armed struggle is the solution to their problems. Yeah, because negotiating has gotten very far. These polls may seem alarming, but what if I told you that Israelis harbor extremist views? Like how half of Israeli Jews support forced removal of Palestinians, you know, genocide and ethnic cleansing, or how 79% believe that Palestinians should be second-class citizens, or, you know, in apartheid state. Palestinian extremism is certainly easier to explain since they've been under military occupation for 55 years. As we've seen throughout history, military occupations are breeding grounds for radicalism. Iraq is a great example. In February 2004, only 20% of Iraqis wanted Iraq to be ruled under Islamic law. Six months of airstrikes later, by which over 100,000 Iraqis had been killed, that number rose sharply to 70%. Which makes more sense, to bomb them into secularism or easing the blockade and ending the military occupation, allowing them economic development and contact with the outside world? It's almost as if the Palestinians haven't been given a fair chance. A scientist during the CIA's MK Ultra program, a scientist by the name of Frank Olson was unknowingly dosed with LSD before falling 10 stories to his death. Olson worked at the bioweapons lab at Camp Dietrich, Maryland, where they weaponized diseases and prepared poisons for assassinations. Shortly before his death, Olson traveled to numerous CIA black site prisons in Europe to witness chemical and psychological torture experiments on prisoners. What he saw deeply horrified him, and his mental state took a nosedive from then on. Back at Fort Detrick, his personnel file noted a change in his behavior, causing a fear of a security violation. At a meeting in Maryland attended by notorious CIA doctor Sidney Gottlieb, Olson was dosed with LSD, which was administered through a spiked Cointreau bottle. His nightmarish ordeal would end one week later, on the ground outside of the Hotel Stadler in New York. In 1994, the Olson family had Frank exhumed, and had a second autopsy performed on his corpse. A panel of doctors at George Washington University concluded, with one member dissenting that blunt force trauma wounds to his head and chest were rankly and starkly suggestive of homicide. I am exceedingly skeptical that Dr. Olson went through the window on his own. 
Over 1 million people died after Britain divided India 75 years ago today. Violent mobs killed scores of people while neighbors turned on neighbors. 7 million people were forced to leave India and travel to Pakistan, while 7 million people fled Pakistan for India. Many of them fled on foot, while others were crammed into trains, which later became known as blood trains, after arriving to their destinations filled with corpses. Train passengers would be outright massacred. Sectarian violence and starvation and disease would quickly kill many hundreds of thousands. Refugees scrambled to relocate to Hindu-majority India and Muslim-majority Pakistan, a border that was drawn by a man who had never been to India before and relied on old census data since he claimed it was too hot to do field research. The border was created in about five weeks. Women bore the brunt of the violence and were treated especially cruelly. Mutilations became standard and about 100,000 women would be kidnapped and forced into marriage. Soon after the partition came a land dispute over Jammu and Kashmir, which later caused three wars, stoking tension between two now nuclear-armed states. The implications of the partition never went away and still hang above the heads of the entire world. killed 70 how neoliberalism killed 72 people at grenfell tower in 2017 a high-rise fire broke out at grenfell a public housing tower in london the fire ignited the external cladding which turned out to be extremely flammable the building also had zero sprinklers none of this was illegal since no laws required them in 2014 a group of mps wrote a letter to the housing ministry calling for fireproof cladding and sprinklers the government said no Sprinklers can be an effective measure to reduce the risk of fire, but they're expensive. A 2006 ban on flammable cladding was reversed at the urging of the insulation industry. The conservative government under David Cameron introduced a one-in-three-out rule, which meant that any new regulation must be met with removing three regulations. Therefore, any new fire safety regulations should only be adopted as a last resort. More than five years on, over 50 different high-rise buildings in London still have flammable cladding, and over 90% of public housing blocks still don't have sprinkler systems. The beautiful homemade caramel sauce. We're going to start by slicing our pears into little pieces, like so. And don't forget the cores. It was 1956. Columbia University professor Jesus Galindez was kidnapped in New York by agents of Robert A. Mayhew and Associates, a CIA contractor used for operations on American soil, something illegal for the CIA to do itself. Galindez was drugged and stuffed into an airplane, then flown to the Dominican Republic. There, he was delivered to dictator Rafael Trujillo. Galindez had just published a dissertation criticizing the Trujillo regime's human rights abuses. For this crime, Galindez was taken to a torture chamber in the capital, where he was stripped naked and hoisted onto a pulley, after which he was slowly lowered into a tub of boiling hot water. His remains were thrown into a lagoon known as the Swimming Pool, where the remains of Trujillo's enemies would attract swarms of sharks and cause a feeding frenzy, a favorite disposal method for the dictator. When the American pilot who flew Galindez became too talkative, Trujillo had him disappeared as well. He too was fed to the sharks. How the Bush family lied twice to Herbert Walker Bush, while the Bush family lied twice to invade Iraq, George Herbert Walker Bush was a joke. News outlets openly called him a wimp, but Bush said he'd have his day, so he lured Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait. Don't believe me? Here's an exchange.
exchange between Representative Lee Hamilton and Assistant Secretary of State John Kelly. If Iraq charged across the border into Kuwait, we do not have a treaty commitment which would obligate us to engage U.S. forces? That is correct. Eight days before Saddam invaded, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq April Glaspie told Saddam personally, we have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts, like your border disagreement with Kuwait. This, not surprisingly, was seen as a green light by Saddam to invade. When he did, the U.S. had their green light to invade. The U.S. then flew 100,000 sorties over Iraq, dropping 88,000 tons of bombs. And that was before the ground invasion started. Fast forward to 2003, when Bush, Cheney, Wolfowitz, et al. were fabricating Iraq's chemical and nuclear weapons capabilities, as well as their connection to 9-11. Bottom line was we didn't think that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. Simply stated, there is no doubt Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. No doubt? Interesting, since UN weapons inspectors conducted over 900 inspections at over 500 sites in Iraq from November 2002 until March 2003. Inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency and the United Nations Monitoring, Verification, and Inspections Commission did not find any chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. terror created way more terrorism. After the invasion of Iraq, the number of deadly terrorist attacks every year increased more than seven times, which killed thousands of civilians. Before 9-11, Al-Qaeda was based largely out of a small corner of Afghanistan, but they quickly spread to South and Southeast Asia, the Levant, Africa, even Europe. Also before 9-11, the U.S. didn't recognize a single terrorist group based in Africa. It is now overrun with them. It's no mystery. When Western countries intervene in conflicts, they turn deadlier, giving rise to terrorism. In Syria, for example, conflict deaths tripled after the U.S. began drone bombings there. The reality is, America and Europe kill more people than terrorists do. Interventions carried out by Western coalitions have become the main source of violence in the world, occasionally contributing over 50% of total conflict fatalities. The cost in lives is staggering, but there's also the monetary cost as well. The 9-11 plot cost Al-Qaeda roughly half a million dollars to execute. At this point, the war on terror has cost taxpayers over 10 million times that amount. Looks like by every metric, America has lost the war on terror. I'm making braised beef with creamy polenta. Doesn't that look amazing? You know, it's like I always say, cocaine use in the United States actually increased after the assassination of Pablo Escobar. It wasn't just the DEA who was hunting Pablo Escobar in 1993, but also the FBI and even the CIA. Spy planes, including the SR-71 Blackbird and a CIA helicopter drone were deployed. As many as 17 surveillance aircraft flew over Medellin at one time. Eventually, the Cali cartel would help locate Escobar, leading to a chase where he was gunned down on a rooftop. It's suspected that the kill shot was fired from an American Special Operations Delta Force sniper. This was the so-called kingpin strategy, developed by the DEA and later adopted by the CIA in its targeted killings during the drone program. The idea went that when you cut off the head of the snake, the drug trade would fall apart. But the opposite happened. The supply of cocaine into the United States and elsewhere actually increased, measured by the price per gram of cocaine, which went down precipitously following Escobar's assassination. The reason was simple. With the major monopoly now decapitated, there was now a thriving and competitive cocaine market. With falling prices, cocaine use soared. Yet another success story in the war on drugs. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gaddafi, that's so much oil. Gaddafi, we're eating straight garlic? On 
February 25th, 1991, while Iraqi troops were retreating from Kuwait on Highway 80, the U.S. military bombed the front and rear of a column of 2,000 vehicles, trapping them so they couldn't escape. For two full days, American forces unloaded with everything they had, payloads of tons of cluster munitions and 500-pound bombs. B-52s pummeled the surrendering soldiers. Aboard the carrier Ranger, loudspeakers blared Rossini's William Tell Overture as A-6 jets took off, each carrying 9,000 tons of bombs. It's the biggest 4th of July show you've ever seen. It's wonderful. The Iraqis posed virtually no threat to the Americans, as revealed by the squadron leader, Commander Frank Swigart, calling the Iraqis basically just sitting ducks. It's not known how many died, as the death toll wasn't investigated and reporting of the atrocity was heavily censored by the military. But out of thousands of vehicles in a 60-mile stretch, every vehicle was strafed or bombed. Every tank is burned. As reported by Bob Drogan of the Los Angeles Times, dead and charred soldiers were left to be eaten by wild dogs, reducing them to bare ribs. Highway 80 would be forever known as the Highway of Death.